It's time for Legally Speaking, where we check in with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael Mulligan joining us as always. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And I can say with a great deal of confidence that I am not in possession of any weapon, pepper spray or otherwise, at this time, <laughs> because that would be highly inappropriate. That's exactly right. It's a bare deterrent, not a weapon of any kind. Absolutely. What's on the docket for us today? Well, the, the first case, I, I think, is uh, one more uh, cautionary tale for all of us in the justice system in terms of uh, what can go wrong uh, when there is a wrongful conviction. Uh, and this case is a case of uh, Mr. Yebis. He's a man who, uh, back in 1983, was convicted of a double murder uh, of his two adopted sons, Gabriel, who was seven, and Tommy, who was six. Uh, it's a case from over on the Lower Mainland. Um, and it's a tragic circumstance. Uh, the background of the case was that Mr. Yebis and his wife uh, became concerned about the plight of uh, poor children in third world countries uh, and uh, went through an extended process to adopt uh, two young boys I just mentioned yes. uh, from Chile. And they moved uh, to the Lower Mainland and joined Mr. Yebis and they had uh, two daughters of about the same age at the time. Um, unfortunately, uh, things at home uh, didn't uh, work out uh, well. Mr. Yebby's wife became concerned the boys weren't following rules around the house, and uh, tension arose as a result, and Mr. Yebby's agreed to uh, move into a townhouse nearby with the two boys to give some, I guess, respite uh, for his wife. Yes. Um, he was a hairdresser. He'd been living there for about six months taking care of the boys. They were still getting together as a family for meals and so on. Uh, and then, uh, tragically, one night, uh, a fire broke out uh, in the uh, bed where the uh, boys were in their bedroom. Uh, Mr. Yebby's called 911. Uh, police uh, showed up, uh, fire department eventually, and the two boys uh, were found to be dead. Um, so it was a complete tragedy. The um, At the time, uh, there was a uh, doctor uh, who gave an uh, expert opinion that um, the boys had not died from the fire in the bed. Uh, the doctor claimed that uh, because of a test of their blood, uh, they must have been dead beforehand, uh, although he could find no other uh, cause of death. Um, there was a jury trial. Um, the other uh, significant piece of evidence was this, uh, that about two weeks prior to uh, this uh, tragic uh, incident that led to the murder charges uh, and the conviction, the other piece of interesting evidence was that Mr. Yebis had phoned the police out of concern for a fire started by the boys in their bedroom. And the police on that occasion had shown up, uh, investigated it, spoken to the two boys, found a candle on a plate in the room. The two boys explained that the fire had been caused by a, quote, monster who had been in the room. The police officer concluded the boys had been playing with fire and told the tale of the monster to avoid reprimand. Very likely. That was very likely so. Um, but uh, based on that evidence from the doctor about the fact that the boys had been dead before the fire started, even though they couldn't point to any other cause of death, the jury convicted him. Hmm. Um, and so he was convicted of murder. Interestingly, and this was recited at the most recent court appearance, um, following the conviction, he um, turned and said this. He said, I would beg the police not to close the case, to not only use circumstantial evidence, but please use feelings and sensitivity. I understand it is hard work, but I beg. He then turned to the prosecutors and said, I also realize you were doing your job. 
And although I know you have made a mistake, I hold no animosity. To my friends, they believe me. I beg them not to lose their faith, because the truth will come out, I am innocent. And indeed it has. It just took a very long time. Uh, Mr. Yebbies was sentenced to life in prison. Um, he was, uh, I think parole ineligibility was 10 years. He spent about 11 years in prison and was released 26 years ago, but has been on parole with conditions ever since. Hmm. He's maintained his innocence. Uh, and with the support of a program called the Innocence Project, which mm-hmm. is run by the law school at the University of British Columbia, um, he eventually uh, made an application pursuant to a provision of the criminal code that now exists, Section 690, that allows, once somebody has, established, has exhausted all of their appeals, to appeal to the Minister of Justice to review the case. And Mr. Yebbies had, in fact, exhausted all of his appeals. He appealed his conviction to the British Columbia Court of Appeal, and on a two-to-one split, they upheld the conviction. Mm-hmm. And he appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, in a case uh, which for a long period of time was pointed to as a significant case in terms of what amounts to sort of deference on a, on an appeal. Mm. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out that, you know, where there uh, is an appeal based on a, a claim um, that uh, the verdict was an unreasonable one. Uh, the test that ought to be applied is whether the verdict is one which a properly instructed jury could reasonably have rendered, mm. sort of this deferential test. Yes. And on that deferential test found that, no, the jury could have reached this verdict and dismissed his appeal. Um, the Innocence Project, now after all of these years, uh, with the benefit of more modern um, medical science concerning the assessment of the blood of the children, concluded that that doctor's testimony about the fact they must have already been dead based on the, I guess, gases in their blood was wrong. Mm. Um, And the Minister of Justice, uh, pursuant to a a review, and they actually have a team, I get six lawyers who work for the Ministry of Justice, Mm -hmm. doing these reviews uh, of uh, claims of miscarriages of um, justice, where there's no further appeal uh, possible because it's been exhausted, reviewed it and the evidence... uh, and material provided by the Innocence Project, and concluded that indeed um, it appeared likely that there was a miscarriage of justice. And as a result of that, the Minister of Justice ordered a a new trial um, just at the beginning of this month, in fact. Um, November 6th, the order was made. Mm -hmm. Very very promptly, the matter was put back into court, um, and uh, Crown Counsel now, with the benefit of the modern medical science about the uh, cause of death, uh, quite properly stood up and said, I'm calling no evidence and I invite the court to acquit. Um, and uh, that's exactly what uh, just occurred. And so Mr. Yebbies, after uh, all of these years, 37 years, uh, was finally found uh, not guilty uh, of killing his uh, two uh, adopted children. Um, happily during all of that time, um, his daughters stood by him and believed in his uh, innocence. Uh, and thanks to the good work done by the uh, uh, the Innocence Project, wow. uh, finally we've, uh, sort of as best the system can do, put that right. But I think one of the real takeaways here is just uh, how much harm can be done uh, when sort of we in the criminal justice system get something like this wrong. Yes. Right? This obviously just... Uh, Uh, completely ruinous. Uh, This person's uh, life and reputation was uh, taken uh, from him. He spent many years in prison. 
uh, and on uh, parole. Uh, and now with the benefit of uh, more modern uh, medical evidence, appears clear that uh, he simply uh, didn't do it. Um, and so uh, we all need to be, I think, very careful, everyone from people serving on juries to judges, and it should, I think, also cause us to reflect upon things like um, sort of the level of deference uh, that we uh, was expressed there by the Supreme Court of Canada and the case that bore this man bears this man's name, uh, which was pointed to for many years as being sort of a, a leading case on how deferential uh, courts of appeal uh, should be when yes. assessing claims of uh, a wrongful conviction uh, like this. It's all very well to say, you know, well, you know, could somebody have come to this uh, verdict? Uh, but uh, here is yet one more example uh, of where uh, we got it wrong and somebody's uh, life was uh, ruined in addition to the tragic uh, loss of the two uh, two young boys. A reminder of the importance of the checks and balances that we have within this system and also why the work that uh, you and other defense counsel do, Michael, is so important because the state has so much power over a person's life and it is absolutely crucial that their rights be preserved and upheld in all cases, regardless of what they may or may not have done to guard against situations just like this. Yeah, I mean, some of the, the concepts that we, you know, perhaps take for granted and sort of use uh, in a loose way, you know, the presumption of innocence and the need for proof beyond all reasonable doubt, um, you know, you, you really, really need to think very carefully about those things, particularly when you see cases like this. And, and this, Mr. Yebbies, is not alone. Uh, there have been many cases now that have, with the benefit of DNA and other uh, scientific advances, uh, we now know that we simply uh, convicted innocent uh, people of doing very serious things. And of course, it's only going to be in very serious cases like murder convictions, where you're going to have uh, groups like the Innocence Project, yeah. and they spent 10 years working on this. Yeah. That's not happening in every uh, sort of routine case. No. And so cases like this should be a reminder for all of us about uh, why we just need to be so careful and just how much harm can be caused uh, when we uh, get it wrong and come to the wrong conclusion. Indeed. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking will continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue our conversation on CFAX 1070. Up next on the agenda, Michael, a new provincial court approach to family disputes in Victoria and Surrey. Yes, indeed. So this is a process which is, or a project that's been in place now. It started in 2019 in Victoria as a pilot. Uh, and on December 7th, it's going to be formalized and extended to uh, both Victoria and Surrey. Um, and the idea is to make some changes to how uh, family court cases are dealt with in provincial court. Uh, and I should pause there for a moment to say, some family cases go to provincial court and other family law cases have to go to Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody wants a divorce uh, or is uh, doing an adoption or is asking for the division of property, those things have to be dealt with in Supreme Court. But there's a large number of family cases that don't involve those things, which are dealt with in provincial court. Um, provincial court tends to uh, be um, less procedurally uh, intense um, and uh, as a result, uh, you tend to wind up with more people who don't have a lawyer who are in provincial court, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, also, that's a function of the fact that if you're not dealing with the division of property, probably money to hire counsel is tight, right? That makes that's sense. The, that's yeah. the other reality. Yeah. Uh, and so 
you wind up with a large number of people who are often unrepresented and the court process uh, has traditionally been, you know, you'd make an application, you go before a judge, or a judge would make a decision. But what is being tried here uh, is rather than having every application go straight in front of a judge for a determination to be made by the judge, uh, the idea is to try to encourage uh, people to come to a resolution uh, together with some assistance prior to going uh, into a courtroom. And so for uh, in provincial court, what's going to be uh, tried is to require for most applications before somebody would be allowed to just go in front of a judge for a decision to require the person or the couple to go and meet with a family justice counselor to go through a parenting education program and then to participate in at least one mediation session to see whether it's possible for the uh, the couple to come to some agreement with those kind of uh, uh, assistance, you know, that kind of assistance being provided, along with some at least uh, general legal advice being available to try to encourage the early resolution of things on a consensual basis rather than having everything uh, go before uh, a judge for a decision to be made. Um, some uh, applications can still go before a judge without going through those steps. They would include things like um, uh, protection orders where there's some danger posed by uh, by one person to the other potentially uh, or some urgent parenting matters you know where there's some danger to a child but the concept is to uh, rather than having everything be dealt with in court uh, to uh, try those steps of mediation and counseling and um, parenting uh, information and so on uh, hoping that uh, it would result in a um, agreement and then where that doesn't happen before simply the application would be heard by a judge and decided uh, to have one of these things called a family management conference occur, mm -hmm. where there would be sort of an informal process with a judge after the parties have gone through um, things like the uh, parenting course and the meeting with the family justice counselor and the mediation uh, to then try with the assistance of a, a, a judge to sort of manage the case and see whether some interim things can be done so that um, things can be hopefully resolved in a fashion that's uh, less confrontational with fewer things simply winding up as a uh, black and white fight in court and then a decision being made. Uh, and then for things that do ultimately need to wind up going into the courtroom, the hope is that by having this procedure at the front end, uh, people would be uh, ready to do that in terms of things like having exchanged financial information and other material that will be necessary for the judge to make a decision. Um, whereas if you had uh, two people just immediately go into court, not having a, a lawyer or legal advice, you can well imagine what would happen, right? People would show up and, oh, you know, she hasn't given me her tax return. Yeah. He hasn't done this and that. And um, and then the idea is to conserve uh, sort of sparse judicial resources. Uh, and the, the, I suppose the other element of it as well is that, you know, if people are with the assistance of mediation and so on, able to come to some agreement themselves, um, that's likely to be a more satisfactory thing uh, than a decision imposed by uh, a judge, right? You know, if two people are able to sit down with the benefit of a mediator, sort out where Johnny's going to go on what days and who's yes. picking him up and so on, that's likely to be a, a more satisfactory thing than having a, a third party say, here's how it's going to work. <laughs> um, and so uh, hopefully this uh, has some 
success. Uh, and uh, as I said, Victoria and Surrey are going to be the places where we'll try it out and, and see how it works. The BC Court of Appeal dismissing an appeal by the Delta Hospice Society with respect to membership and medically assisted dying, a sensitive topic for many. Yes, indeed. So this case comes out of the Delta Hospice Society over in, not surprisingly, Delta. Um, And uh, the uh, issue is this. The uh, board of directors of the Delta Hospice Society uh, does not want to have medically assisted uh, dying Uh, provided in their facility for religious reasons. And the Board of Directors uh, was trying to amend the constitution of the Delta Hospice Society to turn it into a, quote, Christian community that furthers biblical principles, including the sanctity of life. That's what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Now, that takes us to, well, what is the Delta Hospice Society? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a society under the Societies Act, uh, almost all of its funding, though, is provided uh, by the uh, province. Ninety-four percent of its funding is provincially uh, provided provincially. But the the way the thing got into court um, is that the Delta Delta Hospice Society has bylaws that sort of set out things, including who can be a member of the Delta Hospice Society. And basically, the process is you apply and you pay twenty-five dollars, and congratulations, you're a member of the Delta Hospice Society. Hmm. So when this issue became contentious, what the Board of Directors started doing uh, is rejecting people who wished to join the Delta Hospice Society who uh, were not, in their view, um, opposed to medically assisted dying. Uh, And so when people would apply uh, that they thought might uh, support medically assisted dying, they would reject their application and only accept applications by people who had the opposing view hmm. with the hope that they'd be able to pass this resolution at a extraordinary general meeting to turn the hospice society into the Christian community that furthers biblical principles, right? Hmm. Um, and so that's how the thing wound up in court. Uh, and the, both the Chamber's judge and now the Court of Appeal made clear that, you know, the court isn't there to determine whether, you know, sort of what exactly the Delta Hospice Society ought to do or, you know, whether public funding ought to go to this society or whether medically assisted dying is a good idea or not. But the court does have a role um, under the Societies Act to ensure that the society is acting in accordance with its bylaws and the Societies Act. Hmm. Um, and so the Chamber's judge and now the Court of Appeal uh, reviewed the history of that, including, you know, wh- how do the bylaws for this um, organization, you know, what do they require and what is the history of things like membership? Yes. And so they reviewed all of that. Um, it's also interesting to see just sort of uh, what happened to membership here. So back in when all this uh, controversy arose, the number of people who were members was about 400. Um, And after this became a a controversial issue, membership uh, potentially exploded. I think it was up to like 1,600 or something of that sort. But with this group of several hundred that the uh, board was rejecting uh, their membership because they didn't like their their views. Hmm. And so the court was analyzing what does the society's bylaws require? And they concluded that the board uh, does not have the authority to reject applications based on, you know, the moral viewpoint of the potential member. Hmm. Um, also, interestingly, the, the board tried to utilize 
one of the COVID-related emergency ministerial orders, Ministerial Order 116, hmm. which is an order that uh, allows uh, corporations and societies to uh, have uh, meetings by telephone or other media, provided that all persons at the meeting communicate with each other and vote. The idea being that, hey, we have to have an annual general meeting. We don't want to have everyone packed into a gymnasium, so let's set up a MS Teams call or something, right? Yes, yes. Well, that's fine so far as it goes, but what the uh, anti-medically assisted dying board of directors did uh, is that after uh, denying the membership of the people uh, who were in favor of medically assisted dying, they tried to conduct a mail-in ballot Uh, by having the people that they had approved all vote on the change to adopt the Christian community biblical principle uh, idea. Hmm. And the court, uh, Chambers Judge and the Court of Appeal, concluded that no, the that ministerial order, uh, while it permits um, meetings to be conducted by telephone or other media, Zoom or Teams or something of that sort, it doesn't permit you to turn your um, general meeting into a mail-in ballot. And so... That got rejected as well. Uh, the board then uh, tried arguing uh, that they had a constitutional right to uh, freedom of association. And they shouldn't be required to associate with all of these people that uh, didn't uh, ex- adopt their values of being a Christian community. Um, that got rejected by the Court of Appeal uh, in part because they didn't raise that issue back in uh, the original Chambers hearing. And so the outcome of all of this <laughs> is that the Delta Hospice Society is going to need to try again. They've been ordered to approve the memberships of all the people who paid the $25. And then there will be a, um, a meeting called where everyone can actually communicate with each other. And ultimately, I suppose there's going to be a vote on whether there should be a change to what's been uh, proposed by the board of directors. The other thing, which is uh, uh, layered on top of all of this, uh, is an issue about government funding. Right, I mentioned mm-hmm. sort of 94% of the funding was provided uh, through the provincial government and the health authority. And so there's another issue there about whether there should be uh, public funding uh, continued to be provided to this society um, if they decide to adopt this religious principle and refuse to provide um, medically assisted dying services in the facility. You know, should the provincial government be uh, paying uh, for this uh, society. And so they may have a separate issue there. So tensions are high, <laughs> the Delta yeah. Hospital Society. No doubt they do all sorts of other very good work, right? The, you, you've got uh, funding by the provincial government, but they've also got all kinds of uh, volunteers who are, you know, diligently trying to help people in the last stages of their life. Yes. So, you know, well-intentioned people, I think, all around, uh, but uh, very high tensions uh, based on the religious differences about yes. you know how that should be handled, and then uh, various uh, important uh, public policy questions in terms of uh, funding. Um, but uh, I guess at least as a result of the uh, court decision, all the people that paid their $25 are going to eventually get to have a meeting and uh, have a vote on what they think they should do, and then it will be over to the uh, government, I suppose, to determine whether they're going to continue to fund the society depending on Uh, what approach they take. Very well. We're all out of time for today, Michael, but thank you for your time as always, and we look forward to next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Take care. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers.